Today, as we continue to talk about the victorious life of the Christian disciple, I want to spend a few minutes talking with you about the critical nature of forgiveness. Uh, And I decided to include a message that deals with righting wrong relationships in this series. And you know why? Because I don't think you can live in victory if you're living in messed up relationships. Relationships are just a vital part of life. And if you're in the midst of a bunch of mixed up, broken relationships, you're going to have a hard time walking in the power and the strength and the victory and the joy and the peace that mark a life of victory uh, from a biblical perspective. You cannot live in the victory of Jesus Christ and live in hostility and bitterness toward others at the same time. Let me say that again. You cannot live in the victory of Jesus Christ and live in hostility and bitterness toward others at the same time. In fact, I'm convinced that an unforgiving spirit is the primary culprit of why so many believers, many of whom may be able to quote quote scripture all morning long, many of whom haven't missed a day at church in the last 350 years, Many of them, uh, you know, have not missed a a connect group social event in forever, but it helps explain why many people are living in spiritual defeat. And the reason that's true is because forgiving an offender is one of the hardest things you'll ever do. It's very difficult to forgive people when the hurt runs deep. And sometimes it's really difficult for, for people to forgive others when the hurt is superficial. It doesn't even have to be a deep hurt for people to put somebody else on the hook and leave them there to suffocate. And so we know how difficult, I mean, am I the only one in the room that's had trouble forgiving somebody before? Am I the only one in the room that struggles with forgiving offenders, those who've hurt you, or maybe those who've rejected you, or those who've insulted you in some way? The natural response for most people when those things happen is to isolate the other person, to withdraw yourself from them. It's alienation. Sometimes even worse than that, sometimes the natural response is revenge. But the thing we're going to find out from God's word this morning is that when somebody's been forgiven by God... Forgiving other people who've offended you is not something that's just important in your walk with the Lord. It's essential in your walk with the Lord, especially if you want to live in what we're calling the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's look together this morning at Ephesians chapter 4, just two verses to get us started. We'll isolate several scriptures along the way this morning, but this will get us going. Let's stand together as we honor the reading of God's word. Ephesians 4 verses 31 and 32. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Father, we're well aware this morning that these are important words, but yet very challenging uh, 
to us. And we pray today that you'll minister to our hearts, both through the word of God and by means of the spirit of God, who will take the word of God and impress it deeply in our hearts, minds, souls, and spirits, so that we may be changed by it and live differently than the rest of the world. Help us to live in a way that honors and glorifies God as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. It's in Christ's name we pray and all God's people said, amen and amen and amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. You probably are well aware there's a whole lot that the Bible has to say about forgiveness. And there's a world of information that I could give you about the subject of forgiveness. But what I'd like to do today is just kind of give a survey teaching um, from a broad-based perspective by approaching the subject, forgiving your offenders, by asking and answering two very simple questions. The first of which is simply this, why should I forgive? Did you know that the Bible directly answers that question? Why should I forgive? I give you three very important reasons. I give you several, but we're limited in time this morning, so I'm only gonna hold it to three. Three very important reasons why you should live with a willingness to forgive and an intentionality to forgive others when they wrong you. First of all, I forgive others, the Bible teaches, because fundamentally God has forgiven me. And if there's nothing else in the Bible but that, we would have enough to infer that because in my condition as a sinful offender in the presence of a holy God, because God has chosen to deal with me with grace rather than with judgment, that I'm to model the very pattern of God in my life with others. I forgive first and foremost because I've been forgiven by God. Here in Ephesians chapter four, the word that's translated forgive is a particular word. It's not the most commonly used Greek word in the New Testament for forgiveness, but that's what it means. It's It's a close cognate to the word that we typically translate grace. So you could almost translate verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, showing grace to others as God in Christ has shown grace to you. The word carries this idea of treating another person favorably in the face of their offense. Some people receive an offense and they respond in the flesh. That's verse 31, with bitterness and wrath, and anger, and malice. That's the way of the world, and it's how most people tend to respond, not by the so-called golden rule of our Lord Jesus Christ, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, but do unto others before they can do it unto you, amen? And so we tend to respond in kind most of the time with bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, and slander, those kinds of things. But the apostle Paul teaches very clearly, no, you, should, you, you need to respond as God has responded to you in the face of your offense to him, namely with grace. Treat a person favorably in the face of their guilt. The more common word that's translated forgive in the New Testament is a word that literally means to send away or to remove. And you put these two words together <clears throat> and you get the idea of a forgiveness is a gracious removal. It's a gracious sending away. Think along the lines of the canceling of a debt. 
Now, the greatest phone call, one of the greatest phone calls I could receive today would be from my banker that said, you know what, we've just decided to forgive your debt. That piece of paper that we hold on that place you live up there in Cantoma, Florida, right? And what a sweet thing, man. I'd be dancing. I don't care what you Baptist said. I'd be dancing all over the stage today if I got a call like that. Well, that's what they do. When they erase the debt, they forgive the debt. They, they just take it away. They, they send it away. They remove it. And this is what happens to us when God forgives our sin. He just wipes it off the books, doesn't he? He takes it away. He sends it away. You see that personified in the Old Testament through the symbolic action of the high priest and the scapegoat, right? That high priest on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, would act on behalf of national Israel and on behalf of the entire nation. Uh, part of the symbolism of forgiveness would be for the priest to lay his hands on the head of that goat transferring symbolically the collective sins of the nation onto that goat that came to be called the scapegoat. And then he would be led through the crowd as they spit upon him, tried to kick him and do anything that they could because that goat, the scapegoat, was symbolically carrying away their sins. He'd be led out into the desert where he'd be turned loose effectively to die. It's a removal. It's a sending away. Forgiveness is a taking away, a carrying away of a debt that we owed because of an offense that we'd made. And God has done that with our sins. He has removed it as far as east is from the west. And as far as east is from the west, man, east and west never run into each other. If you take a globe here and start going north to south, if you're traveling north, you will eventually run into south, won't you? The Bible's very precise. Not as far as north is from the south because north catches up with south on a globe. But you, once you start going east on a globe, you never catch up with west, do you? And that's why the Bible says it that way. God removes our sin as far as east is from the west. That's important. Because each of us as sinful human beings coming into this world under the curse of Adam and Eve, are born into this world in a condition of debt to God. My precious grandson over in the preschool is in a condition of debt to God. It doesn't have anything to do so much with him personally. He couldn't even define sin. He doesn't know what it is. He inherited it from all of his forebears going all the way back to the garden. And that has put him in that condition of debt to God and it keeps us all separated from God spiritually. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the result of that is from the moment you're born, you're brought into heaven's court and you cannot pay the debt on your own. You're found guilty. God throws you into something of a debtor's prison. And when you're thrown into a debtor's prison because of your indebtedness, and obviously if you had money, you wouldn't be there. So how are you gonna get out? You can't. It's a life sentence unless somebody with means comes along and pays the debt for you. Can I have an amen this morning? You know where I'm going. And this is what God does when he should have just left us there, thrown away the key. God comes to us with grace and he releases our debt. Not just automatically, but when we express faith in the person and work of Jesus Christ, his work of atonement on the cross, 
God, on the basis of faith, through the work of Jesus Christ, by means of his grace, takes our sin and he carries it away, removing it as far as east is from the west. Romans 5, 6 and following says that. It's one of the greatest statements in the Bible. For while we were still, what? Say it out loud. While we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Verse 8, God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Christ didn't die for friends. He died for weak, ungodly sinners who were as far away from him as they could possibly be. Let me just tell you, this is worth the price of admission today. If you ever doubt how important you are to God, read that statement again. God loves you with an everlasting love and he's proved it because he sent his only son to die for you when you were locked away in a debtor's prison because of your sin. We all come into this world in a condition of obligation to God because of sin and yet God, who alone had the capacity to do it, paid the price to forgive the debt. That's why we sing songs. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Why do I forgive? I forgive because God has forgiven me. This is what creates the obligation for me to forgive others. Colossians 3.13 Bear with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgive each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must, what? Forgive. There's no wobble room right there. If you've been forgiven, you are under obligation to live in the forgiveness of Christ toward others. And you know why? Because nothing anybody has ever done to you or will ever do to you is worse than what you did to put Jesus on the cross. Never forget that. It was your sin. See, we tend to come into church. Whose sin did Christ die for? Well, I know this guy sitting right over there today. He's not as good as he thinks he is. Well, neither are you. Neither are you. It was your sin that put Jesus on the cross. The great Methodist evangelist Sam Jones of another generation said one time, I had a hard time forgiving people until I made up my mind that I wasn't going to fall out with anyone until he treated me worse than I treated Jesus. That's a good word. I forgive because God has forgiven me. But second, the Bible teaches I forgive because I want God's blessing and not his judgment. I want God's blessing, not his judgment. Did you know that a willingness to forgive is in one sense a sign that you belong to God? It's a sign of the truthfulness of your Christianity. The Bible says in James 13, you all remember that when we studied James, James 2.13, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Now, if you'll remember back from our study of James, you remember that Pastor James was convinced that there were some people in his congregations that were claiming to be Christian that really weren't Christian. And the way he knew it was by reports that he was getting of the way they were acting. And that's part of the reason that he wrote the letter, so that he could merge theology and right practice together in a way that was transformative to people. And one of the things, because he was concerned that not everybody in the body was of the body, 
he writes this statement basically saying, if you withhold mercy, you're demonstrating a failure to live like Christ. And if you fail to live like Christ, that may well indicate the absence of Christ in your life. And if Christ is indeed not present in your life, then that puts you under the what? It puts you under the very judgment of God himself. And so the whole point in living with mercy and grace and forgiveness to others is that in one sense, that reflects your awareness that you've received mercy and grace and forgiveness from God himself. You failed to show mercy and you run the risk of judgment. Y'all remember how Jesus taught us to pray? How did Jesus teach us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, you remember that prayer? Hallowed be my, thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Forgive us this day our daily bread, uh, or give us this day our daily bread. Everything good over there, brother? All good, thank you very much. Y'all look at me now, not over there. And then Jesus says this, forgive us our debts as we what? As we forgive our debtors. Now what's interesting there is that in that statement, we find both a request for our own personal forgiveness from God, but then also secondarily a request that we be forgiving toward others. Both requests are there. And the thing about that, if you take the direct objects out of the sentence, what are you left with? Forgive us as we forgive. Now that's an important understanding because most of the time we recite that prayer, we just kind of gloss over it. The early church father Augustine called that the terrible petition <laughs> because no word in that statement should concern you more than that little word as. Forgive us as we forgive <clears throat> others. You know why that little word as is troubling? Because if you pray that prayer, you model your prayers on that, you're basically asking God to forgive you based on how you forgive others. And if there's any doubt about that, notice that Jesus clears it up in the next few statements in Matthew 6, 14 and 15. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you, but if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Now, it's always interested me that after giving us the model prayer there, the only commentary that Jesus affixes at the end of the prayer is the part of the prayer that deals with forgiveness. Jesus doesn't provide an excursus on what daily bread is or is not. Jesus doesn't provide an excursus on the true nature of his kingdom or what it means to legitimately pray in the will of God. He, he doesn't offer an excursus on temptation and how to fight it or whether we're to be delivered from evil or from the evil one who is our adversary, the devil. He doesn't explain any of that. But when he gets to the end of the prayer, he tags on an excursus about forgiveness. I wonder why that is. Could it be that he knew that this would give us fits? That we'd have real trouble here. So to go out of the way, he basically says, here's the deal. If you live in forgiveness, it may indicate one of two things. Either you really don't belong to me like you think you do, 
And maybe you need to be born again. Or at the very least, you're making a decision to walk in the flesh and you need to know to decide to walk in the flesh will come with consequences in terms of your relationship with me. Because there'll be a wedge between your relationship to me and my relationship with you if you choose to look more like the devil than like me in the world and live in bitterness and fleshly unforgiveness. So you have to be careful about the Lord's Prayer because it can become a self-inflicted curse because you're essentially praying, Lord, deal with me as I deal with others. And last time I checked, does not the Bible say in the kingdom of God, you reap what you, that's right. And here you see a prime example of that. So you need to make sure that you're living closely in the Lord because the closer you walk with God, the easier it's gonna come uh, to forgive others. Now some will say, well, pastor, you just don't know what that person did to me. No, I don't. But from a biblical perspective, it really doesn't matter. And the reason I know that is because God has taught us to bless our enemies and not curse them. God's taught us to pray for those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. And then he models that for us. Does Jesus not? As they were literally driving the stakes in his hands and in his feet, Jesus cries from the cross, what? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. By the way, Stephen, in Acts chapter 8, prays exactly the same prayer. As he was being stoned by his accusers, the Bible says, Stephen opened up his mouth and said, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Literally, his rocks are pounding against his flesh. That's the model of Jesus Christ, and that's our pattern. The great British preacher, Charles Haddon Spurgeon, said one time, go to Calvary, go to Calvary, go to Calvary to learn how you may be forgiven and then linger there to learn how to forgive. That's a good word this morning. I forgive because God has forgiven me. I forgive because I'd rather have God's blessing than God's judgment. And then finally, I forgive because I want to live in victory. I want to live in victory, not bitterness. Who in their right mind would choose to live in bitterness when they could live in victory? And yet some do. And that, for the life of me, is totally confusing. Because the truth be told, the most destructive part of unforgiveness is what it does to you. Anne Lamott, in her little book, Random Thoughts on Faith, once said forgiving uh, or, or not forgiving others uh, is like drinking rat poison and waiting for the rat to die. That's a good word. We're so desperate for the, you see, you want the rat to suffer and hurt. Problem is the rat hadn't touched the poison. You've drunk it all. And we think, here's the deal. That person that you're hostile toward, that you will not forgive, and you think you're hurting them, let me, just, let me just lift the veil this morning. They're having a great time. They're the ones enjoying life. And they're probably not even thinking about you, truth be told. You're not hurting them. 
And that's why you need to learn to forgive and move on. Because to not do that is in a sense slow suicide. Unforgiveness is acid that eats its own container. Hebrews 12 and verse 14, strive for peace with everyone. That's on you as a believer. That's on you. You strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. And then he says in verse 15, see to it that no, what? Say it out loud. No root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble and by it, watch this, many become defiled. Listen, you think it's just between you and the other person. It's not. You're dragging everybody into it. Everybody knows you got an issue. Your spouse knows it. Your kids know it. Your associates know it. Your church knows it. By it, many become defiled. Look again in Ephesians 4.31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice, be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. So much more we can say, so many wonderful biblical examples. I think about Joseph and his brothers. I think about the beautiful reconciliation between Jacob and Esau who had lived for years in hostility with one another. We could supplement all the rest of the morning long. But these are some biblical reasons from the New Testament why we forgive others. Let's move to the second question and briefly review how we can forgive. We move from the why question to the how question. How am I supposed to do it? Uh, And you have to understand three things about the nature of forgiveness that are common misconceptions. And so let's kind of remove some of the misconceptions in terms of what forgiveness is and what forgiveness is not. First of all, you should note that forgiveness is not forgetting. Did y'all hear me say amen? We hear it a lot, let's just forgive and forget. I don't even think that's possible. I don't think your human brain will allow you. Listen, it's in there, it ain't going nowhere. And so you can talk about forgetting it and good luck with that. But forgiveness is not forgetting. You know, in fact, I think the very action of trying to forget something just drives it deeper. I think it makes it harder to forget when you're trying to forget. Um, It just makes you focus on it all the more. At least it does me. The real issue in biblical forgiveness is not forgetting, it's releasing. Write the word releasing down. It's releasing Look at 1 Peter 2. This is a verse about Jesus and his attitude. It's one of my favorites in the Bible. And I've had to, I've memorized this. I've had to go to this many times and draw from the well. When Christ was reviled, he did not revile. This is talking about the events leading to the crucifixion. When Christ was reviled, he did not what? Revile in return. When he suffered, he did not what? Threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. You know what that means? At the crisis hour of his life, when everybody in the world was against him, his disciples had all fled. He was standing all alone. He didn't defend himself. He didn't argue. He didn't cajole. He didn't try to strike back. He could have took them all out with a hot breath. 
if he'd have wanted to. It would have been over. But he didn't do that. He didn't threaten. He didn't tit for tat. It just says he continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Well, what that means is Jesus just gave his case to God and said, here, you be the judge. That's Christian maturity right there. You don't strike back. You don't put the person on a hook. You don't live in bitterness thinking that you're going to punish the other person when in fact it's just punishing you. You just say, God, I'm, I'm out of control on this deal. I'm giving you the situation. You know the whole story, both sides. You know their heart. You know my heart. I'm going to choose to forgive, and I'm going to let you be the judge because you're more adept at being a judge than I ever will be. And so you do like Jesus. You just turn your case over to God, not dwell on the hurt. You decide not to forget about it, but just to release it, to let it go and to let it go to God and refuse to walk in the flesh in terms of how you live in human relationships. That's biblical forgiveness. That makes sense? Secondly, you need to remember too that is forgiveness is not forgetting, neither is forgiveness trusting. You don't trust a person to forgive them. Y'all hear me say amen. In fact, I would counsel some people you ought not trust. You're unwise if you trust certain people. And so this is it's not the same thing. You can forgive someone and here's the thing, so many times people think, well, you know, if I forgive them, that means I've got to be willing to go back just the way it was before the hurt. No, it doesn't. The relationship may never be fully restored. It may never become anything more than just superficial in nature. It may never be the same as it once was. Sometimes it can be. It depends on the level of the hurt. Depends on what happened. Forgiveness is a choice. It's an instant act. You let the person off the hook and you remove the guilty sentence that you've imposed upon them. But that doesn't guarantee that the relationship will ever be fully restored because trust is something that has to be built over time. You can't just forget that something never happened and you can't just go back to the way things used to be, at least not quickly, when there's been a major hurt and nobody, including the biblical writers, asking anybody to be gullible when you forgive. He wants you to be wise, God does, about the relationships of your life. And when trust has been violated, it takes time for that trust and that relationship to be restored, if it ever is. But trust is not forgiveness. They're not the same thing. And third, remember that forgiveness is a decision. In this sense, forgiveness is a lot like love. You can't really talk about for biblical forgiveness without, in some sense, at least mentioning biblical love. Because the two are opposite sides of the same coin, really. And you all know what the Bible says about love. Is there anybody that you should withhold love from? Zero. We're to love others as Christ has loved us. The same principles apply. And love is a decision. It's not a feeling, it's not an emotion. If that's the case, there'll be far more people that you will not love than those that you will if it's based on feelings. And that's true also about forgiveness. Forgiveness is something you just have to grant. You give it. You, it the other person can't earn it any more than they can earn their love or your love. It's, it, you make a choice simply to give it. And it doesn't matter if the person is worthy of it. It doesn't matter their merit. 
Whether or not the person asked for it does not come into play even. You don't wait until you feel like it to love because love is not a feeling, love is a choice. And you don't wait until you feel like it to forgive. Here's a key, in the kingdom of God, actions always precede emotions, which is countercultural because we tend to make every decision from emotions. We wait for the feeling to arrive first and then once we get the feeling that we need to do something, that's typically when we do it and not until. But that's not the kingdom way. Actions come first based on what God has already said. And so if God has told us to do something, regardless of whether or not you feel like doing it, you need to do it. If God says you need to love this person, you need to love them. You say, well, I don't feel, that doesn't matter. You say, well, they, didn't, they don't give me love back. It doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. Because love is a commandment. And you can't feel necessarily a commandment. I think I've told y'all before, whenever my dad would discipline me, we'd start to cry, you know, little kids. Because we wanted dad to be happy. We'd start to cry. And what the first thing my dad always said, we'd go, we'd keep on moaning and crying. And he'd look at me and say, you better be happy. You better get happy. Like him telling me in the midst of my emotional fit to get happy was going to make me happy. That was only making me more unhappy. See what I'm saying? Somebody's hurt you and God looks at you and said, you better love them. If you're waiting for a feeling, you'll never love them. We love because he first loved us. Aren't you glad that God deals with you based on his grace and not based on his feelings? We'd all be dead because we're born into this world in a condition the Bible calls the wrath of God. We're under the wrath of God. God is eternally hostile towards sin. He loves you, but he hates your sin. And yet God demonstrates his own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So you can make all kind of arguments you want to make on why you shouldn't forgive this other person and every one of them is an emotional argument. You can't make a biblical argument on continuing to live in bitterness. Sometimes people want to know, well, what are the limits? What are the limits of forgiveness? I mean, how often should I forgive? Well, let me ask you this. How often should a medical doctor treat a sick patient? Just as long as he likes him? As long as the sick patient says the right thing, one and done, what if the affection occurs a second time, third time? Guy keeps showing up to the doctor for treatment. Should the doctor refuse to treat him based on the follow-up visits? No, he treats him each and every time he becomes ill. That's the way it works with forgiveness. Peter once asked the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? See, Peter was struggling with this. Well, Peter struggled with a lot of things, but that's another sermon for another day. But evidently, because he was a hothead by nature, right? So we're not surprised it's Peter that comes to John. How many times when my brother, a singular brother, who is obviously a repeat offender, sins against me, how often should I forgive him? 
And then Peter, thinking he's being very generous, says, as many as seven times. Now, here's the thing. That sounds pretty generous to me. I mean, when it comes to getting hurt by the same person seven times, man, that seems a little bit like overkill. But then Jesus looks at him and says, brother, you're not even close. I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. Some translations say 70 times seven, which would be 490 times, which is even more gracious. But here's the thing. All those sevens are important because that's a biblical number that symbolizes what? Completeness, perfection, fullness. This is hyperbole. It's exaggerated speech to make a point. And the point is, for a Christian disciple, forgiveness has no limits. It has no limits. We're to forgive in an unlimited kind of way. If you play around with it, if you get careless with it, if you choose to respond emotionally, let me just tell you, it will handicap your spiritual walk with Christ and it will forfeit you the victory that's yours by divine right. I had a friend one time who had an old ankle injury and he never properly dealt with it. He grew to be in his 50s. He was a great baseball coach. In fact, he's in a, a state high school hall of fame. He was so effective as a baseball coach. But he walked literally on the side of a foot. He had an old injury. I don't really even know what happened to him, but I, he was in my church in Missouri and he walked on the side of one foot. He'd even jog on the side of one foot. It, made, it hurt me just to watch it. And he visited with a doctor one time and the doctor told him, you know, we can, we can fix that. We can fix that. And so he said, okay, let's fix it. I'm burning daylight. I'm 55 years old. Let's fix that thing. So he went in, he had surgery. I went visit him in the hospital before he had surgery and then went and followed up with him afterwards. And he had a successful surgery, went out and went to about two physical therapy sessions out of eight or 10 he was supposed to go to. Y'all know where this is going. He said, oh, I can do this all myself, save the money. And I mean, within six months, he was walking on the side of that foot again. He went back to his old handicapped ways. And the thing that I found is, is that this is the way a lot of believers live their life. There's a way out. There's a way back to the victory that's marked by joy and peace and enthusiasm and encouragement. My friend didn't have to walk around with a crooked foot, but rather than deciding to do the things that would lead to healing, he kept up the bad habits and he'll walk with a limp for the rest of his life. And what's sad is that so many will choose to limp along with a gimp in their soul when they don't have to. And the culprit is bitterness. Healthy Christians not only receive free grace from God, but healthy Christians give grace. And when in doubt, healthy, mature Christians always err on the side of grace. I'm grateful to inform you this morning that there is a day coming where the need to forgive will forever be obliterated because nobody will ever offend again. The bad news is that day's not here yet. And until that day comes, 
The Bible teaches very clearly we are to live like Jesus. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. This is God's word and all God's people said, amen. amen.